So uh, last week we saw uh, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Sim helped us to see, if you were here last week, how Jesus came to save us. He helped us to see our need of cleansing and renewal. And uh, though we have a tendency not to, not to think we need it, or perhaps not to want it. If you missed that last week, then do, uh, you can get it online and, and follow through. This morning's passage continues in chapter 3 with quite a few links back uh, to the ground that we covered last week. Um, so we'll kind of be going back there a little bit. We're in page 1066, uh, John chapter 3, 1066. Uh, John is one of the kind of four what we call gospels in the, in the New Testament part of the Bible. Biographies that really of Jesus' life, death and, and resurrection. Let's, say, let's pray again uh, as we turn to John chapter 3. Lord, as we've just sung, we do want to lift your name high. And I pray that uh, you would help me by your spirit, that uh, you'd give me the words that would lift your name high. And I pray that you'd work in each of our hearts too, that your name would be lifted high in our hearts. Lord, whether we uh, know you yet, or whether we've known you for decades, we pray that you would increase in our hearts this morning. And we would have a deeper joy in knowing you. Amen. So, uh, oh, has someone taken notes there? Um, so we're looking at the light of life. This is our series in John and uh, looking at reactions to the light today in verses uh, 22 to, to 36, uh, finishing off chapter 3. I want to get straight into the story this morning in chapter 3 uh, and look at some cleaner washing uh, in verses 22 to 36, uh, 22 to 26. Uh, so page 1066, if you'd like to follow, I'm reading from verse 22 under the heading, John testifies again about Jesus. And just in case you're kind of new to this uh, and you kind of hear these different Johns mentioned, uh, John the Baptist, who we'll talk a lot about this morning, is a different John to the John who wrote this book. Uh, that's nice and confusing for you, hopefully not. But um, So we're we're introduced to John the Baptist in chapter 1, and uh, we read again about him now in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So on one level, these uh, first few verses in this story uh, are a story about washing. The word baptize literally means to immerse, to dip, uh, to submerge. And we can observe from these verses that baptism clearly has something to do with purification, with washing clean. Uh, We could look at other gospels, verses in the other gospels, and work out that baptism also has to do with repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We could look at other places in the New Testament and work out that baptism has to do with uh, some kind of dying to ourself and and living a new life. But, But these are not John's emphasis here. John's emphasis here is about being washed clean. We don't know the details about this argument that uh, some of his disciples are having about the matter of ceremonial washing, uh, but we do know about the background of ceremonial washing. 
a background which isn't familiar to us today, probably a bit weird for some of us, probably you're hoping he's not going to go into ceremonial washing, is he? But I think it'll be helpful. Um, So I am, sorry. Uh, But I just wonder if we've lost something. If we were around in the days of Leviticus and uh, Numbers, books in the Old Testament part of the Bible, if we were around in those days, we'd have been constantly aware of ceremonial washing. We'd have viewed ourselves and others and certain objects as clean or unclean. It all sounds a bit weird to us now, maybe. That might be so. But I wonder if we've lost something in, in kind of not having this background. See, all these references and Leviticus to numbers, uh, numbers to clean and, and unclean ceremonial washing ultimately had to do with one thing, the holiness of God. They were tied into the whole tabernacle and temple system, the place where God's people would go to meet him, which itself spoke of the separation between the most holy God and his sinful people. These categories were constant reminders that God is holy, that God is so intensely pure, so separate, so set apart from from anything that we might be able to conceive. And they also reminded God's people that they were not holy, that they fell short of, of God's perfection. And as various things made them unclean, they'd go through this cycle of washing, of ceremonial washing in, in water to change their status from defiled to, uh, to fit for the Lord. And it was a complex system, and I'm not going to go into the details, but the point was to teach the infinite holiness of God. God is not to be trifled with. You didn't really enter, just kind of waltz into God's presence in those days, casually. Maybe we've domesticated God and lost that sense that we're, there was a risk, a challenge, a danger, an apparent impossibility of human beings entering the presence of God. And the act of cleansing was a, purifica- was a, was a picture for the purification of sin and redirect, rededication to God. It's possible that this argument that uh, was going on in John chapter 3 was about later ceremonial washing rituals that had developed since those that God uh, talked about in the Old Testament part of the Bible. Uh, For example, there were various groups who bathed in cold water daily uh, with a view to purity. It's possible this argument was about the relationship of John the Baptist to to, to his baptism, to the ceremonial washing rituals. Well, the argument could have even been about the relationship between the baptism that Jesus or his disciples were performing and the Jewish ceremonial washing rituals. Maybe someone had been claimed to be purified by Jesus through baptism. Whatever the argument was, it's prompted by some of John's disciples to complain about Jesus, to complain to John about the rising popularity of Jesus. Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing And everyone is going to him. They even sort of seem to begin to distance themselves from John. That man who was with you, not us. The one you testified about. Everyone is going to him. And this question is implied. What are you going to do about it? We should perhaps note uh, that at the beginning of the next chapter, John tells us that actually it might not have been Jesus doing the actual dipping. Uh, uh, John in chapter 4 says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So uh, perhaps here in chapter 3 what's going on is Jesus is not doing the actual baptizing, but Jesus' disciples are the ones who are, who are doing the baptism. Jesus is using his disciples to do the baptism. 
But, um, so this picture of baptism is a picture of being washed clean from our sin. And this isn't really the kind of point of this passage, but I want to take the opportunity to say today that we're planning a baptism service in, in a few weeks' time, May the 29th. And uh, if you'd like to explore whether baptism is for you at this time, uh, then we'd please come and speak to me later this morning. I'll be in the, in the foyer behind you. I'd love to come and talk to you. We're planning on running a, a short course that you can come to with no commitment, uh, no commitment to be baptized, uh, just to explore whether it's the right thing uh, and to prepare, help you prepare for it if it is right for you. Uh, and so this is leading up to a baptism service on the, on the 29th of May. Uh, so please come and see me for more details. But as I said, the, the focus of this passage isn't actually baptism. That's not what this is about. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the focus of this passage. It's all about him, and specifically Jesus in contrast to John the Baptist. Jesus surpasses John the Baptist, and Jesus surpasses the washing that John the Baptist performs. Jesus surpasses the ceremonial washing, the, the purification in the Old, Old Testament. Jesus surpasses all of that that comes before him. Jesus performs a cleaner wash. As we've already seen in chapter 2, the whole temple and tabernacle system pointed to Jesus, the ultimate meeting place between holy God and sinful people. Jesus is, one of the names given to him, Emmanuel, God with us. And as even in his introduction, John writes how the word tabernacled, made his dwelling tabernacled among us. Jesus is the place where we can meet with God. And in his sacrificial of his own body, sacrificial offering of his own body, Jesus performs all that is necessary to wash us clean. Perhaps uh, if you want to reflect on this more, you could read Hebrews chapter 9 later on. For now it's enough to say that Jesus performs a cleaner washing. Jesus makes us permanently clean. He's made us perfect forever, as Hebrews 10 puts it. But back to the challenge of John the Baptist's disciples. Uh, carrying on in, chapters, uh, in verse 27 of John 3, we get to John the Baptist's reply. In his reply, John the Baptist described his role as, as being like Jesus' best man at his wedding. Only Jesus didn't have a fiancé. He didn't have a wedding. How could John the Baptist be his best man? I took the opportunity to have a look at some of the latest best man speech ideas on the internet. Uh, I don't know if John the Baptist could have used any of these, but uh, some sort of commented on the words that uh, the the bride might mutter um, associated with weddings and um, kind of the bride's attitude perhaps towards her groom as she thinks about the kind of aisle that she walks down and the altar that they come up to and hymns that they sing and people hear the bride saying, I'll alter him. Um, anyway. um, and uh, yeah, or there's a, one joke that a guy was going to use with Mark knows his wife so well when I asked him what her favourite flower was he instantly replied self-raising um, or uh, uh, here's this one uh, you have to pretend I'm the best man for this one uh, people have often commented that myself and, and Mark are like siblings I suppose I take on the role of an older brother and then I turn to the groom and say wouldn't you agree little sis uh, that's my kind of humour anyway, sorry. Um, anyway, uh, let's take a that's, that's just kind of a little insight there for you into my life with my brothers. Uh, but let's take a look at John's reply and see what he means by referring to himself as Jesus' best man. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, 
but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John's answer contains, on the one hand, timeless wisdom that we can apply directly to ourselves, and on the other hand, revelation about who Jesus is. So here's some uh, timely wisdom, particularly helpful perhaps for those of us who might struggle with comparison. Uh, You might know what I'm talking about. If you ever uh, struggle with those kind of, I want what she's got kind of thoughts. I wish I could be like him. I'm inadequate compared to them. A person, John says, can receive only what is given them from heaven. That was true for Jesus. All these people were flocking to him. So many people that John's comparing disciples, it felt like everyone is going to him. But these people were given to Jesus by his father. This saying was true for John the Baptist also. He was entirely content to receive what God would give him. And he accepted that it would be different to what God gives to others. In this case, what God gives to his son. Maybe this could be a helpful truth to reflect on when we find ourselves making unhealthy comparisons with others. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. What has God given me? What does that mean for how I view what I perceive to be greater success or blessing in others? How can this uh, combat a temptation to wish I was someone else called to serve in a different way? How could this impact how I relate to my colleagues at work or at college, at uni? A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Part of the answer is surely that it's not about me. It's not all about me. I'm not the center of the story. John the Baptist grasped this. He grasped that he's not the center of the story. He knew that Christ must be at the center. John the Baptist was more concerned with Christ's honor than his own. John the Baptist wanted Christ to be made much of and knew that he needed to fade. There's kind of a couple of words here which mean the same thing. Messiah is the Hebrew word for Christ, which is based on the Greek. The word Messiah or Christ referred to God's anointed one. The one who'd been promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And as John says here, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. And we saw this back in chapter one of this gospel. And this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, this is John chapter one, uh, in uh, Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Messiah. And uh, they kind of go on and ask him if it was all these other people. And he tells them who he was. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John the Baptist had already made, always made it very clear that he was not the Messiah, the Christ. Instead, he was the one whom God said he would send ahead of his Christ to prepare the way for him. Now, here in chapter 3, John uses a new metaphor, a new picture to help us see his relationship to the Christ. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. 
So John speaks of Jesus the Christ as the bridegroom and himself as the friend who attends the bridegroom, the best man. Jesus the Christ, the bridegroom. John is the best man. Where's the bride? The context would suggest it's Jesus' disciples, the everyone who's going to him. And here John the Baptist is happy for all these people to go to Jesus. They belong to Jesus, the bridegroom. They are the bride who God has given to his Christ. But there's a, a deeper background to these verses, though. John the Baptist didn't just make all this up. God's people in the Old Testament are depicted as the bride of the Lord. In passages like Isaiah 62, where God's kind of saying he's going to restore things, he's going to make his people, uh, he's going to vindicate his people. People will see that he's not forgotten them. And in Isaiah 62, verses 4 to 5, God says, No longer will they call you deserted or your, na- or your land desolate, but you will be called uh, Hephzibah, or my delight is in her. This is the name God gives to his people. And your land, Bula, married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This is the background to what's going on here. John's actually claiming that Jesus is Israel's awaited king and Messiah. He's the one who would marry, who the Lord's people would marry. Jesus himself refers to himself as the bridegroom in in the other Gospels. And, and of course, if you're kind of familiar with the New Testament, you'll be aware of this kind of imagery that carries on through right to the end, actually, when God's people at the end of the Bible are are pictured as this this bride coming down from heaven, this bride uh, of, of God, of Christ. The friend who attends the bridegroom found his great joy in watching this this ceremony proceed without a problem and and knowing that the groom and bride are going to be united with this rejoicing. And this joy belongs to John the Baptist, and he says it's now complete. He's got the final and ultimate satisfaction of knowing that what God has given him to do has been successful. And uh, while some people might be troubled and, and upset by the rising prominence of Jesus, everyone going to him, John is filled with joy at that thought because that's exactly what John knew his whole purpose for being was, for people to go to Jesus. Someone has uh, written, John finds his joy not in grudgingly conceding victory to a superior opponent, but in wholeheartedly embracing God's will and the supremacy it assigns to Jesus. We don't have the specific role that John the Baptist had in history. He was the best man. Uh, If we've received Jesus, we're part of the bride. But doesn't that mean we'll share the best man's joy in seeing our bridegroom made much of? In fact, wouldn't you hope the bride is even more pleased for the bridegroom's uh, increase than the best man is? Reminded of John Piper's often quoted phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What joy might we know in our ministry service if we seek the rising prominence of Jesus in it and through it? What joy do we rob ourselves of instead of, if instead of focusing on Jesus getting the glory, we begin to, to keep tabs on how much people are noticing us? What joy might we have if instead of thinking about how this makes me look, 
Instead of thinking about uh, our reputation, my reputation, we start thinking about how this will make Jesus look and seek his uh, increase. Uh, So this was uh, John's fulfilled joy. And then uh, in uh, verses 31 to 36, uh, either John continues, it might be the words of John the Baptist, uh, or it's the word of John who's writing, we're not quite sure. Uh, Probably the comments of the author of the gospel um, but it doesn't really matter. They both, they both have the same purpose. They both want people to believe in Jesus. And so uh, verse uh, 31, uh, John the author says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The Old Testament part of the Bible identifies heaven as as the place where God dwells. And here Jesus is presented as the one who's from heaven, from above. And so he's uniquely qualified to speak about heavenly things. Because he alone has seen and heard them. I've been trying to book a summer holiday and I've noticed this kind of new trend. I've not seen it before. But on some of the websites, the travel agents, they say, we've been here you kind of, uh, they're convincing you, they can tell you this is a really nice place and you can ignore the naff-looking photo because we've been here and, uh, and we had a great time. I'm sure they're not getting any commission for selling those rooms. It's the whole basis of TripAdvisor, isn't it? If you know TripAdvisor, the kind of review website that uh, people comment on places, and why do you go and look on TripAdvisor? Because you want to hear from people who've been there. You want to hear from someone who's seen and heard. It's the same as we might have recommendations from a friend if we uh, don't just rely on the internet. Recall Jesus answers Nicodemus earlier in chapter 3. Very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking of himself, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. We speak of what we know, testify to what we have seen. Jesus is like giving us the ultimate TripAdvisor review. And uh, in chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus will say that he tells the world what he's heard from his Father. Jesus says similar things throughout throughout this gospel. And readers of this gospel won't be surprised if we've already read chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, that's referring to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was there. He's seen and heard. Jesus knows what he's talking about. He testifies to what he's seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. This is another theme we've seen already. In chapter 1, verse 11, his own did not receive him. Or in chapter 3, verse 11, you people still do not accept my testimony. Chapter 3, verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, 
but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. But some did receive him, chapter 1, verse 12. Some did choose the light, chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Some did receive his testimony, here in 3, verse 33. And there's an invitation for for all of us today. Uh, We've been thinking, or are thinking, about reactions to the light. There's an invitation to us in how we react to the light. Will we receive him? Will we believe in his name? Or will we be like those who reject? Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful, John says. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hand. God has given Jesus the Spirit without limits. That is to say, Jesus receives from the Father the fullness of the Spirit without measure. In the past, God has spoken to his people through different messengers in in varying ways, and each messenger received a, a portion, a measure of the Spirit as required for their task. But now the Son has arrived. And the unlimited measure, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, rests on him. One of the books I was studying used a long word that I wasn't particularly familiar with, or wasn't familiar with at all. Um, I'm an engineer, so I'm very clever, but just not on on long words. And uh, and this word was uh, plenipotentiary. Does anyone know plenipotentiary? Oh, yes, a couple of clever people. Okay, good. I'm glad it's not just me, though. Uh, I had to look up its meaning. And uh, apparently it's based on uh, Latin words for fool and power. Uh, According to the Oxford English Dictionary, a plenipotentiary refers to someone who is invested with the full power or independent action on behalf of their government, typically in a foreign country. So uh, think of an ambassador to the United Kingdom, invested with full power uh, to take... Sorry, invested with full power to represent the government of the United Kingdom and to take independent action on behalf of our government. As far as the people in in that country are concerned, what the ambassador says and does is what the government of the United Kingdom says and does. So, for example, think of this guy. Uh, This is, and he's got this fantastically long name and title, this is Sir Nigel Kim Darroch, KCMG, which stands for Knight Commander of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, Her Majesty's Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary to the United States of America. So that's his job since January of this year. Imagine the size of his business cards. He kind of fits all these names in. Uh, And uh, just interesting, last night after uh, doing this this slide, I then saw a bit on the news of Boris Johnson basically saying President Obama is uh, nakedly hypocritical. And I thought, a bit of a contrast. Boris Johnson couldn't be acting as a plenipotentiary, could he, with kind of words like that. But uh, here's uh, Sir Kim Darroch, who is able to act as a a plenipotentiary. He acts in the United States with the full power uh, of the United Kingdom government. So this scholar, who's cleverer than than what I am, uh, wrote, The son is the father's envoy plenipotentiary, his perfect spokesman and revealer. Of course, the illustration breaks down. The spirit is a person and, and not just some kind of sense of authority. The spirit isn't just a power, just a force. You're getting muddled up with Star Wars, if that's what you think. The spirit is a person. He's part of the community of God, the Trinity, as we say. The Spirit was there in the beginning 
with a father and son. But I still think that picture of, of the ambassador is helpful. With the fullness of the Spirit, the Son represents the full power and authority of the Father. One commentator has written, Jesus so completely says and does all that God says and does, and only what God says and does, that to believe Jesus is to believe God. Conversely, not to believe Jesus is to call God a liar. Another commentator has written, God entrusts his own credibility to the Son. The point is, if we fail to accept what Jesus says about who God is and what God is like, then we fail to accept God. To refuse Jesus is to refuse God. Maybe that's starker than some people like to think. Maybe you've heard expressions like, I like to think of God as this. Maybe you think that yourself. I like to think of God as such and such. For me, Jesus is this. But think what we may. We're refusing God and making him out to be a liar if we don't accept the being he has revealed himself to be in the person of his son. On an infinitely more trivial scale, you can think of what you like about my name. You can prefer to think of me as more of a Barry, if you want. But uh, but I'm making myself known to you as Daniel. And, And if you don't accept me as Daniel, then you're basically saying I'm a liar and rejecting me. The Christ has come from above. The Son has come from the Father to make him known. The question is, will we receive him? For those of us who have received him, let's not fool ourselves into thinking this is just kind of some babyish application for for newcomers. If God has made himself known in a certain way and sent his son to testify, then shouldn't I be making every effort to soak up all the testimony from the Son that I can. How much difference is there really between someone who never receives Jesus' testimony and someone who says they received Jesus' testimony once but doesn't spend their lives seeking it out, striving to grow in the understanding of Jesus' testimony and in that way receive more and more of it and know more and more of God? Verses 35 and 36 then link back to verse 16, really. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That we are now told in verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands, only intensifies how deep the Father's love must be for this dark world. John wants his readers to be clear that ultimately there are only two reactions to the light. Ultimately there are only two reactions to the light. Believe in the Son or reject the Son. And John wants his readers to be clear of the consequences of those reactions. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Or as he put it in verses 16 to 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. 
Eternal life that he's talking about here is, is the life of the age to come. It's experienced now in part. We begin to enjoy it now as we receive Jesus, but we don't get its fullness until later. We experience it in its fullness and enjoy it in its fullness later on. How do we get this life? By receiving Jesus, by believing in him, not just a kind of intellectual assent, not just by believing that he exists, but by trusting in him, putting our trust in him. Remember last week, this act of looking to Jesus, like uh, God's people look to that serpent. We look to Jesus, we trust uh, that uh, Jesus is able to save us. And if we do that, we're freed from facing God's wrath. Uh, the, 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 the consequence of not doing that is God's wrath remains on us. But if we believe in Jesus, we need not face it. Um, an illustration we use on the Alpha course quite often uh, involves, uh, well, usually a DVD, I think, but I thought I'd do a multi-generational illustration today. Um, so uh, for those of us who kind of like these things, it's a VHS cassette, uh, a little bit older than a DVD. And, uh, or if you want to be a bit more modern, then here's a DVD. And uh, for those of you who are really cool and trendy, here's a flash drive. And imagine on this uh, VHS cassette or this DVD or the flash drive, uh, depending on your um, uh, preferences, imagine that uh, just imagine that everything that you've ever done, ever, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought uh, that would keep you from God, imagine it's contained in, in that media uh, of whatever sort it, it is. Imagine that contains all that you've ever done that causes this separation between you, God, you and God, all your rebellion, all your rejection of him, all that would see God's wrath fall on you. Imagine that's there on you. And, uh, and what Jesus does in the cross, in his death on the cross, is he takes that on himself. He takes all the sin, all our sin, all the wrath, all God's anger in judgment for our sin, he takes it on himself. And where does that leave me? That leaves me free to enjoy the relationship with God, free to enter his eternal life, free to become a child of God and know him as father. This is uh, the joy of, of what Jesus has done. And uh, if you want to kind of explore more on that, then as Lou said earlier, we've got an Alpha course starting this Thursday. And uh, it's a great way to come and find out more about what that means. Uh, ask your questions, whatever your questions are. Uh, no questions will be, will be laughed at or you won't get kicked out. Um, and unless you say, can you kick me out, I suppose. But um, no questions uh, will be laughed at. Do come along on, on Thursday evening if you want to come. And there's a great meal as well. Really friendly, uh, relaxed atmosphere. Uh, someone wrote, one scholar wrote about this, just thinking about uh, the, the, the consequence of not, though, receiving this life, because the opposite to life is death, isn't it? And he said, God's wrath is not some impersonal principle of retribution, but the personal response of a holy God who comes to his own world, sadly fallen into rebellion, and finds few who want anything to do with him. Such people are condemned already. How do you react to the light? What is your reaction to Jesus, the Christ from above, the Son from the Father? Whatever your reaction, please understand this. God's heart is that no one should perish. God desires that no one should face his just wrath. Indeed, he's acted to make it possible that no one has to, because Jesus faced it in our place. And therefore, 
If anyone is ultimately condemned, if anyone ultimately suffers God's wrath, it will be because they rejected God's life-giving Son, because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Elsewhere in the Bible, God pleads with a rebellious people, why will you die? We looked at Ezekiel last week. In chapter 33, verse 11 of Ezekiel, God pleads with his people, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they turn from their evil way, from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? God takes no pleasure in wrath, in death. He pleads with us to turn and to live. Is God asking you that question today? What will be your answer? I'm going to leave a moment to reflect, and I'm going to pray.